0: I thought about, okay, there's high enrollment. But are you are you talking about enrollment in the entire general course, or are you talking about enrollment as far as class size? Because there's a difference. You have a high enrollment general course, but that can be broken down into sections, and then you have smaller class sizes. So
1: you know, I think that's an important thing to consider because some courses need to have more touch. You know, they need to have you know, and I think we'll talk about that more, especially some of those courses that are writing intensive. And so, I think how we think about that is going to be important, and so that's an important consideration. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Scaling education has been an important topic in higher education for decades. For years, the solution for general education courses was to have hundreds of students file into a lecture hall on a regular basis and listen to the instructor. Assessments were often an exam of some sort that was often multiple choice or short answer. Some courses would often include a term paper as well, but those courses tended to have graduate students who would assist the instructor in grading papers. One of the biggest questions that is being asked at ASU is how do we innovate higher education and then how do we scale that innovation? This is especially important as public institutions are challenged to effectively educate more students with less funding. We want to create an inclusive environment where we admit as many qualified students as possible to our programs and graduate them as well. Beginning in 1999, the National Center for Academic Transformation began a process to explore various models so that we could lower the cost of key courses in higher education while increasing both student enrollments and achievement. The Arizona Board of Regents began participating in 2006 with 10 projects six of which were conducted at ASU. Before we get started talking about the various techniques that emerged, it is important to note that when you scale your course for higher enrollments, that you consider a full redesign of the course and not just how to make small adjustments here and there in your course. So what were the findings from the various projects at ASU? One of the first things was to envision the use of technology in these face-to-face courses, which considering the year makes sense, but I think it's important to note that since many courses today are not fully utilizing some of these technologies. This includes moving quizzes online, the use of clickers, and other online tools. However, the technology is only a small component. The change in pedagogy was far more substantial. These courses became more student-centered and more focused on problem-solving. In a computer literacy course, content was delivered in a manner that encouraged students to search for solutions to problems on their own and guided feedback throughout the course pointed students in the right direction. The goal was to guide students through the process of finding a solution to a problem rather than simply providing the solution for them. This was a theme that was echoed by the redesigned chemistry course, where they focused on cooperative learning and guided inquiry. In an organizational management course, they refocused the face-to-face weekly class meetings so that the nature of the face-to-face class time was changed from a lecture format to the instructor leading discussions and providing context for what students discovered through individual and group assignments. They found that this assisted in deepening students' knowledge of the subject matter. Another area of improvement was the use of consistent content through an agreed-upon textbook. One of the criticisms of higher education is that no two courses are the same, especially when taught by different instructors. For an example, two instructors could teach the same course during the same semester, but have different textbooks and assignments on different topics. This project encouraged faculty to work together and share resources. While we could record a single podcast on each of these individual approaches, we will look at things holistically today as we discuss high enrollment courses. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Stephen Crawford from Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation Academic Innovation Team. Joining me today are
2: Jeanette Senegal.
0: Celia Katretiwa.
3: Aaron Kraft.
1: So before we get started, we should probably acknowledge that high or large enrollment means different things to different people. When I say high enrollment, how many students do you think about?
0: I tend to think about a 1,000. And then along with that, I think about courses being broken down into sections. And I do know that ASU, one of the largest lecture halls here is Neeb Hall, and that holds about 438 students.
3: Yeah, I do not think that high is a uh, thousand is the threshold. I would say like for me, one hundred and fifty or so, even a hundred seems like quite high.
2: Yeah, this is an interesting question. I I never realized that I have no standardized or evidence-based sense of how to answer this. Off the top of my head, anecdotally, experientially, I think of anything above like 100 students to be high enrollment. It's totally arbitrary.
1: And and that's a good point. You know, and you think of graduate level courses, they're going to say anything over 15 or 20 in some cases could be too many students. And so they consider high enrollment anything over 20. I think of a lot of undergraduate courses. They think anything over 30 is high enrollment or 60 may be a number at some institutions. I can tell you, I've worked in my career, I have worked on an online course that had a thousand students, all tuition paying. I've also worked on a face-to-face course that had a thousand students who all filed into a convocation center and attended a lecture once a week. Ding, ding, uh, ding. Who's the winner? So yeah, I mean, when you think about high enrollment, it means a lot of different things to different people. So some, yeah, it just means a lot.
3: Well, when I was teaching online, I would often have. I started with about twelve to fifteen in a classroom, which is reasonable. However, by the time I was reaching the end of my online teaching career, at least I was hitting five hundred to twelve hundred wow. simultaneously in the in the virtual classroom. It, it was a synchronous online course, but uh, that was a huge shift. And I, I, you know, that seems to me the high enrollment, if there was one.
0: But see, so when I thought about this question, though. I thought about, okay, there's high enrollment, but are you are you talking about enrollment in the entire general course or are you talking about enrollment as far as class size? Because there's a difference. You have a high enrollment general course, but that can be broken down into sections and then you have smaller class sizes. So that's where I came with my
1: my higher number. That's a good question. I was thinking actual class size.
0: Okay. So, so yeah, yeah. And to me, I mean, you could have, you know, 20 English 101s and put them all together. It's a high enrollment course. But then when you look at them, as far as the sections go, you break them down into smaller.
1: But, you know, when, when we talk about efficiency, I think a lot of times we talk about class size as opposed to the course enrollment over all sections. You know, I think that's an important thing to consider because some courses need to have more touch. You know, they need to have, you know, and I think we'll talk about that more, especially some of those courses that are writing intensive. And so I think how we think about that is going to be important. And so that's an important consideration. So let's go ahead and talk about a face to face course. What are some of the ways we can transform the classroom so that we can create an engaging experience that scales to include an increase in enrollments?
2: Well, as you touched on in the introduction, moving to implementation of student-centered active learning activities where feasible, where possible. Sometimes it's just the simple techniques, taking an extra five or 10 minutes, even during a lecture-heavy class session, but build in a little bit of opportunity for peer brainstorming, problem-solving, case study analysis. Even a little bit of that active learning implementation can have a big payoff. And there are some technology tools out there that can support this work. So you might consider whatever your institution offers or go outside the box and try a Kahoot or something like that. Realistically, it might mean that you live and become comfortable with a very chaotic classroom with 30 or 40 or more small groups interacting noisily at the same time. Practice for the instructor and the learner goes a long way to being comfortable with that. I
0: would also add some, you know, flipping techniques, flipping the classroom, maybe doing some pre-class assignments so that the students are coming in with general knowledge and background knowledge of the Content So that there is more time to provide some of those maybe active learning strategies in class. I would also say grouping, finding a way as far as space allows to be able to group students to do more work together so that there's that conversation piece amongst peers. And then, of course, you have, you know, things like having TAs to or uh, teaching assistants to help out with some of those grading efforts.
3: One of the trends that I've noticed is that universities more and more are creating these active learning classrooms, or they're remodeling a classroom to become active learning centric in a sense. So, and what this usually involves is a really high budget and creating, uh, I don't know how you would say it, maybe like tables, like what I've seen are like uh, circular tables placed throughout the room, and then students sit around the table, maybe in a group. Sometimes there's computers at the desks there, and this changes the dynamic of the classroom, so it's no longer like this stadium seating where everybody facing one direction towards the lecturer, but instead the students are facing each other. It's a divide and conquer approach where the students are put in groups and then they get to work together or at least is, this allows the facilitation of more learner centric activities.
1: I'm glad you kind of you, you carried on from Celia's comment about as the space allows because mm-hmm. as a faculty member, you don't often get to choose the room you're in. And you were talking about how expensive some of these rooms are and they've put a lot of nice bells and whistles in some of these active learning rooms, For me, I'm like, just give me a big room where the desks and chairs can move. That's all I really need. I don't need to have the students having their own, you know, each group of six students having their own screen that they can broadcast to in their small groups. And then I can broadcast to as I'm lecturing uh, or presenting content, though that's beautiful and a lot of fun. And when you consider mobile technology today, the fact that I can walk around with an iPad and wirelessly broadcast what's on my screen all across the classroom, so therefore I'm tethered to the front of the room? I love that idea but what about that faculty member who is stuck in that lecture hall where the desks don't move? I mean what about the people who don't get to choose their room and don't get to, don't win the classroom lottery and get that room.
2: I think you have to be creative in thinking about how you use that space as a resource. Maybe it's not feasible to put students in groups of five, but can they pair up? Can you have two students who are randomly sitting next to each other do an activity? Is there a place for them to move around the perimeter of the room? Can you take up a little bit of hallway space without causing any kind of you know, safety issue? It's understanding what the limitations are and then being creative to overcome them in a sense. And in terms of the facilitation, one thing that I've seen employed with some success is bring in some extra helping hands, especially early in the semester. Sometimes that means trading off with a peer instructor. I'll come to your class and give you a hand for half an hour. And next week, you come to my class and give me a hand for half an hour.
3: Yeah, I had a teacher in grad school informally recruit me to assist moderation duties in her course. Nice. And you know, it's, uh, it's something that looks good on the resume, but I didn't get paid for that necessarily. <laughs> but it, it was a good experience, though. There's those methods as well. Um, I, I don't know if that's always feasible. Well, there's always the hybrid model. Of course, you have to be allowed to give your class in a hybrid model. But if you can have the students do something on their own at home before they come to class, then I think that helps as well with the facilitation of the, of the larger classes, especially.
1: Well, even if you can't go hybrid, you can still flip, as Celia was talking about earlier. You can still have them do things beforehand.
3: Can you? Is that I mean, is that acceptable if it's a fully on-ground course?
0: Well, that's the difference between flipping being hybrid, you can still pull that in without a complete course design change. I sense? always heard
3: hybrid as the flipped or flipped and hybrid as being sort of you well, know, I twins. Don't, or, I don't know if we want to go into a setup. full conversation yeah.
1: of that in this podcast because we can talk about that more. But what I will say is that when you look at a definition of a credit hour, there is an expectation that students will do things outside of the classroom, you know, and that's usually homework. And if the homework is to be prepared and do these readings, which is what, you know, you think about the traditional lecture class, the homework traditionally is go read this and that's supposed to take you the X number of hours that you need to to do as homework for this credit hour requirement. And then that would be completely acceptable.
0: With you asking the question about high enrollment courses where the instructor doesn't get to choose their classroom, I also think about how to take the benefit of the technology that we have today because, you know, years ago, before all of the mobile devices, those lecturers had to basically lecture and, you know, figure out ways to do it without the technology. But now we can utilize the technology just like Jeanette was saying. So even if the desks aren't necessarily movable, the students might be able to still do discussions and work together in groups using the technology or even just doing some formative assessments using the technology and mobile devices.
3: Quick survey. What is everybody's feelings about clickers? I think they're a useful tool.
0: I think they are.
3: I'm a little biased because often you hear of students buying the clicker for one course and never using it again. However, in terms of instant feedback or being able to engage with the instructor as they you know, during the class period, it seems like it would work in this situation.
1: Yeah. And, and I think as more courses have adopted it over the years, that one course only is has gone away. Oh, good. And then you add to the fact the devices themselves have gone away and become apps on your phone. Or Is that the to, case? No, it's been a while since I've yeah, had these Yeah, um, apps there. on your phone, iPad, or web browser in, uh, on your laptop. There's an app for that.
2: Yeah, with the shift away from the specific hardware devices, it's in some ways become easier
1: to an extent to move towards that model. And it's become better because some of them support heat maps, so you can project an image to the students and you can tell them instead of giving them a multiple choice of tell me where this part of the of the heart is or this part of the cell is or whatever you're looking at they can actually just look at the image and touch it with their finger and then you get a heat map showing all in real time in real time oh that's fantastic yeah there's some really cool advancements in that so let's make a shift and talk about content Um, we've been talking about some of the activities in the classroom As we move away from lectures, that makes it harder for us to cover all that content we have to cover in our courses. And we know, you know, here in nursing, especially with the undergraduate degrees, there's a lot of content to be covered. So, what are some ways that we can effectively cover that course content while having more students in the room?
2: I'm going to play a tiny little rant card. Go for it. At the end of the day... The, the place to start is go back to the objectives. Really, truly seriously focus on what is mission critical. Ditch the rest. I know this is hard for us, but it's a process of developing trust in your learners that they will, in time, successfully round out their knowledge and skills, and that learning doesn't stop after the final exam.
3: So basically, tidy up your syllabus, your learning objectives, maybe get rid of some of the stuff that's not necessary. The entire course. Good Clutter? start. Alignment. Mm-hmm. alignment. Alignment, alignment, alignment.
0: I would also suggest utilizing the LMS, uh, the learning management system. If you need to provide extra resources, provide it there. You know, have other places for students to find other materials that they can review on their own time. And then, like Jeanette said, you know, use those objectives to align your materials. And that can also help to take out some of that excess content that isn't always completely needed within
3: the lecture. You got to be really careful, especially in the in-class portion. If you're teaching that many students and, you know, if it's a seven and a half week or even if it's a 15 week course, you don't have a lot of leeway to go off track, to go off course.
1: And that's one of the dangers of a face-to-face course is that when you run out of time at the at the end of class, you have to make a decision. Do I pick up where I left off at the next class? Or do I say, go, go learn the rest on your own and I'll pick up where I should have been at the next class? Because if you choose to go, I'll pick up where I left off, sooner or later, you're going to run out of class because you're at the end of the semester and you might have skipped whole chapters. I'm a big fan of The Flipped Classroom. I like the idea of recording mini lectures on different topics. And the the fun thing about that is you can do that over the course of time. And again, if you're working with other faculty, build a library of these things. And and that way you can kind of hit those topics. But I, I have another idea out there that I've read a lot about. And that is, why do we have to cover the content? Why not teach the students to uncover the content for themselves? Anybody familiar with that idea? Inquiry-based learning? Yes.
3: Well, sure, you give them a problem and then they go through the course materials that you provide them, maybe through the LMS or in the class session, and they have to discover the answer to the problem themselves, in a sense. Is that what you're saying?
1: Pretty much. And, you know, and some of the research shows that students actually have a deeper level of learning when they do that because they're solving problems, they're discovering it on their own, as opposed to the broadcast version of us just lecturing the whole thing out at them. So you know, when they discover that they don't know something through an activity, then they're forced to go uncover and discover the knowledge themselves.
0: And that goes back to utilizing some
2: of those active learning uh, strategies. It provides an opportunity for some authentic learning because you can bring in more potential more real-life examples, case studies, it's an opportunity for that peripheral foundational knowledge to emerge gradually as they work through authentic learning experiences,
1: which is great. So, you know, another problem that we've seen with uh, high-enrollment courses is the assessments, and they tend to be a sticking point um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of the biggest complaints that we've seen with the MOOCs is that those assessments are just often simple, multiple-choice, multiple guests, auto-graded assessments. So how can we have more authentic assessments in high enrollment courses? And I'll start with the writing intensive ones. That's that's always one that bothers a lot of people. I mean, because... You know, we're talking about the English courses, the uh, the composition. That That's a huge sticking point I know with folks and, and anybody who has a lot of writing assignments. How, how do we get through that problem?
2: It's a huge issue and probably not one we're going to solve, unfortunately, in this this podcast episode. One of the programmatic models that I've experienced is that structured delegation where you have subsections within a course. As you alluded, the, the traditional model is to use your graduate assistants, your teaching assistants, but there may be room for other ways to bring in that sort of facilitation and assessment skill but it requires resources. And it can only be as effective to the extent that delegates are you know, proficient in providing high quality, consistent feedback across subgroups. Whoever your lead instructor or coordinator or facilitator is, they have a big responsibility to prepare, support, and monitor for quality assurance. Otherwise, even within the same class, you're going to have vastly different experiences with your students.
1: So you're talking about a whole different structure to teaching large enrollment courses where instead of a faculty member teaching a course, you have a faculty member who is maybe a course coordinator. And then instead of having TAs, they actually have, I think it's, I've seen it called um, academic associates. And they, their role is to work with a group of students, care and feed the discussion boards and grade the assignments.
2: Absolutely. So there's a high level of facilitation, not just necessarily grading, but they're not responsible for developing course content, maintaining policies, dates, all of that stuff. They're really in the weeds with the students in the learning process.
1: And this model is primarily used, I'm assuming, in online?
2: It varies. It could be implemented face to face. I think the quality assurance part might be more difficult. I would utilize uh, rubrics, especially in those
0: writing courses, a well thought out rubric. I'm a fan of those, as well as even peer review to help with getting providing some of that feedback for students to give them a chance to look at their work before submitting an actual final draft.
3: Right. And feeding off that, I'm always a fan of the project-based approach. You know, if you have 100 students in a classroom, you divide them into 10 groups of 10, you're grading 10 projects instead of 100. Right. So all of a sudden things become a little bit easier on on the instructor's end. So I always go for that. However, I did want to make the case for non-authentic low-stakes assessments. since we're talking about assessments. I would say throughout the course, or maybe even throughout the lecture, you could provide, maybe through the LMS, automatically graded low-stakes multiple-choice quizzes. D- or
1: dare we say formative assessments? We dare.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so which can serve as knowledge checks. Right, yeah. in that sense, yeah, it's a formative assessment. You can incorporate that, and then it's it's sort of it's a little painless, right? It, and within those as well, you can put feedback. You can add uh, maybe the instructor can't talk to each of the hundred students, but they can provide detailed feedback for the questions on these automatically graded you know, multiple choice quizzes, for example. That way, you still get the instructor's words, and it still get the message still gets dispersed across everybody.
0: I completely agree with that. I think one of the most important things as an instructor is. Is to provide feedback to the students with that being said one of the things that I hear a lot of instructors talk about when thinking about providing the feedback that's automatic when they create those quizzes or those exams is the use of time and not having the time in the beginning when they're developing their course to provide that feedback and they you know wait until afterwards but my thing would be that if you do the front-end work and you do the preparation it makes it a lot easier later for you to already have that feedback ready to go and you're not worrying about providing 150 responses to every single
3: thing. Well, that's exams. what saved me when I was teaching. So I would have several hundred students in the classroom. There's no way I could assess each one of them, but what I would do is I'd take a sample. I would have mini groups come up onto the microphone. So you'd have a group of five and they would do a quick activity for five, 10 minutes. So as a group, you could watch them do their piece or answer my questions and you, you get the uh, social learning element because they're working together. And then as an entire class, we all get to provide feedback to that. And then you have little micro sessions and you keep, you know, you do that for 40, 50 minutes and then uh, it greatly helps with facilitate the class flow. You get through a large number of students and I'm not sitting there losing my mind trying to figure out if what I'm teaching is effective or not.
2: Yeah, I think that structured pre-formatted feedback, it's underrated and you're absolutely right, Celia. It is a time investment, but the payoff can be not having to go back through 150 responses and curating those. There are tools that can be used to keep your questions in sort of a database format. So you can quickly go back and tweak them and retune them from semester to semester.
1: And those low stakes quizzes, I love dropping in when you get the wrong answer, telling the students, this is the page in a textbook you should go look at. Mm. Exactly. That way it's directive.
0: I would go steer away from giving them the exact answer, but making them go search for the answer and giving them that pathway to the answer, I think is more way more effective. Yeah.
1: Link it back to the concepts. The greatest thing we can teach our students is to teach them how to learn. And that sounds kind of weird to say, you got to learn how to learn. But the bottom line is, it's not about me telling you what the right answer is. It's about you being able to figure that out. Because if you can't work through the course content and complete these assessments on your own, what happens five years from now when you're in the workplace and things have changed and you've got to keep up to date. And also, I want to talk about what you were saying, Aaron, about the, the group projects. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of team projects. And I think one of the complaints we've seen from students in large classes is, I don't think you meant it flipped. I think you meant it in a good way, but some students will see, oh, the faculty member is assigning teamwork or group projects because they don't want to grade 100 assignments. They only want to grade 10. But if you create a project that's bigger than one student and you make it a team project so that they all have different roles in it, I think that changes everything. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about. Absolutely.
3: I went off on a bit of a tangent. I think the concept that I was trying to speak towards was front-loading the work. So instead of creating 50 PowerPoint slides for a 50-minute course, I would end up creating five to 10 slides of discovery for the students. So the students would get into groups and then I would show them a slide and they would have to together work as a team with roles yes. to find the answer that I, to the question that I proposed to them. So yeah, front loading the work in a situation like this.
1: You see, because I'm also a big fan of peer review. And a lot of times the joke is, oh, you do, you assign peer reviews for students to grade other students' papers so that you don't have to grade them. And that's not the purpose of peer review, but that's unfortunately the perception students have so when we assign peer review for students, we really need to give them strong guidelines as we would give an academic associate or a TA. These this is what you're looking for as you do this. So that you learn how to do peer reviews and you actually get something out of the activity in the process. It's something to keep in mind that like, are we doing this because it's making our life easier, or is this actually helping the student? And so
3: Absolutely. Well, the whole the fundamental argument for using a learn center approach is to develop problem solving skills in the first place.
1: Exactly. And that's and that's the goal. That's the Idea, and I think when you have a, a problem inquiry type based course, it makes things a lot easier, and that does scale. I know it scares the heck out of people, but it does scale, and and you can and you can do that. Well,
3: it's not in our pop culture. You don't see movies where the instructor is administering a learner centered approach. The movies about the instructors are the movies that we see in our in our pop culture are about the lecturer who's popular or unpopular with the students. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, well, I'm thinking Robin Williams Dead Poets Society, even though he technically did. Oh, I went did. To back
1: to school with Roddy Danger. Field. <laughs> <laughs> Two different paths. <counselor. laughs> but you're right. And, and so there is this mental mindset that our students and their parents project that this is what college is going to look like. And so we have a responsibility to change that. All right, so that wraps up our discussion on high enrollment courses. We know that our enrollments will be increasing. We know yours will be as well. So with that in mind, we invite you to explore some of these techniques and try them out in your course. Consider how would you redesign your course so that you can handle more students and in the same time kind of make your life easier. Technology is not always the answer, but with pedagogical changes and working with an instructional designer, you can make the course even better for your students. Feel free to tweet to us one of your ideas for how you would manage a high enrollment course and some of your techniques. We love hearing from you. I'd like to thank the wonderful podcast team, Jeanette, Celia, and Aaron. And also, once again, Ricardo Leon, our audio producer who keeps us sounding crystal clear. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as an in instruction by design, underscore podcast or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.
0: Yeah, and to me, I mean, you could have, you know, 20 English 101s and Put them all together, it's a high enrollment course. But then when you look at them as far as the sections go, you break them down into smaller.
3: That makes 2020s, right? Sorry. (laughs) 2101s.
1: Wow, I'm, s- I'm sorry, guys. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> <All right.
2: coughs> Snapchat.
3: <laughs> I'm glad I was able to think about it before the next topic <laughs> came. <out>. <laughs> <laughs> Viciously. Scrap paper with the time <laughs>